0: Well, as many of you know, today is June 6th, and 77 years ago, on June 6, 1944, at 6:30 in the morning, British, American, and Canadian forces landed at Normandy in the largest amphibious attack ever un- undertaken up to that point in history. Now, wave after wave of Allied forces sought to break through the Axis stronghold on the French coast in order to eventually liberate Paris. And defeat the Nazis. Now, by the end of June 6th, out of the 132,000 men who landed on the beaches, almost 4,500 of them were dead, while another 9,000 were wounded or missing. Now, thousands of Germans, of course, died as well that day. It's impossible for those of us who are civilians to imagine the horrors of war- warfare. Bullets whirring past, bombs exploding, airplanes flying overhead, waves, sand, barbed wire, grenades, machine guns, blood and bodies strewn across beaches, beautiful beaches. These men were willing to sacrifice their lives in order to liberate others. And while we must resist the temptation to glorify war, for war is horrible, while we must resist that temptation, those who lost their lives so that others could live, should be remembered, and honored. And if I'm honest, it's easy for me to honor these men, to feel my chest swell at the thought of their sacrifice. The enemy was so painful and horrifically evil, it does not feel like a political statement to celebrate D Day. Hitler was systematically wiping out God's image bearers, so it's easy, I would say, to celebrate their sacrifice. But if I'm honest on another level, and and perhaps you can relate to this, I have a hard time embracing and celebrating the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. I don't mean that I've, I've lost my faith, that God has promised to keep me in Christ by the power of the Spirit, but in my flesh, I still struggle to remember and celebrate the Lamb of God who took away my sin, who took my sin on himself. See, I was involved in that sacrificial death intimately, the death of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, a Jewish man who, as we see in our passage, walked to Jerusalem with a crowd on their way to the Passover in order to die. He walked that path to Jerusalem as he predicts over and over again to free me from death and sin. And it's something that I think about far too infrequently or dispassionately when I do think about this. Now, don't hear me revel or boast in this as some postmodern rant of some sort. I'm simply seeking to describe a reality of the Christian life which we must name and resist. It's hard to embrace and celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that the case? Because it's antithetical, I would say, to every instinct which this world and our remaining sin naturally clean. It's antithetical to think about suffering as something to celebrate. We think about D-Day and we think about victory and we want to celebrate, but to think about suffering, the cross, the humiliation of Jesus Christ is antithetical to our natural instincts. And so we don't want to celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ when we think about it according to our flesh, or at least I would say we have that temptation. Now Calvin understood that there are times when we do wander, and he writes about it in his institutes, and thankfully he gives us comfort amid that reality. He says, the Father has given all power to the Son, that he may, by the Son's hand, govern, nourish, and sustain us, keep us in his, keep us in his care, and help us. Thus, while for the short time we wander away from God, Christ stands in our midst to lead us, Little by little to a firm union with God. Now, if you don't like Calvin, I know you like the song, Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. The same thing that Calvin wrote, but of course in poetic form. The disciples in our passage, the disciples following Jesus experienced this reality as well. In tonight's passage, James and John, that is the the sons of Zebedee, hope to gain glory and honor, but despite their assertion to the contrary, that they're willing to suffer, despite that assertion, it's almost certain they have no real interest in taking up their cross and following Jesus. The disciples struggle with the same thing we do. They resist that suffering. They resist celebrating the cross. Now, a few chapters back, as we've looked at extensively, Peter resists the cross even though Jesus insists on it. Peter warns him not to suffer and die. So what does Jesus do? He keeps telling him that that's what he intends to do. Time and again, Jesus preaches the gospel to his disciples. This is the third time, or you might even say the fourth time, that he's done it in just three chapters. And based on the rhythm of Jesus' discipleship plan for his followers, this rhythm of repeatedly reminding them that he plans to die, based on this rhythm, it seems prudent for us to extract a similar principle to our own pursuit of Christ. As we, in our temptation to be prone to wander, as we seek to not wander, if we're going to ask how are we going to grow in our remembrance and our celebration of the cross, And the resurrection, we must repeatedly listen when Jesus calls us to himself and reminds us of his gospel. And that's what's happening in the beginning and end of tonight's passage. Jesus and his disciples, as I said, are amid a big crowd of people walking to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, an annual feast, where they remembered the fact that God redeemed them out of slavery to Egypt. But Jesus on this walk, on this path, he he finds a place to to pull over, you might say, to to gather his disciples, just the 12 of them, and give them a short message about the gospel. If you look at verse 17, he, he huddled the group together for a quick message about what he intends to do in Jerusalem, to die and to rise again. He draws his disciples together to remind them of the gospel. And then if you look At the end of this passage, 24 and 25, he does the very same thing again. Ten of the disciples are mad at James and John for trying to get the best seats in the kingdom. They're indignant. They think, wait, I should have thought of that. So what does Jesus do when they reveal their fleshly instinct to want power, to want glory, to want honor, but not want suffering? What does he do? He stops. And he calls them over to himself again. You see in 24 and 25, he huddles the the 12 together and he explains the gospel to them. He explains to them what he intends to do and why. And if this is what the disciples needed, if this is what they needed, surely it is what we need to stop, gather around Jesus, and hear him tell us once again once again. They've heard it multiple times, just as many of you have heard it multiple times. But it is what we need. We need to stop and gather together around Jesus and hear him tell us what he has done for us. I hope you know that that is why you are here tonight. To gather around Jesus so he can speak to you and remind you what he did for you. And this is how your mind and heart are conformed to the cross by hearing it preached at least that's jesus's plan for how he's going to reshape the minds and hearts of his disciples he is going to repeatedly stop gather them to himself and declare again and again and again that he is going to die that he is going to rise again now this shouldn't surprise us we we function this way in every aspect of our life a week ago, I can tell you what i wasn 't doing i wasn 't celebrating d day why no one was talking to me about d day No one was reminding me of d day last weekend. but if you check any website that you consider news, I guarantee you 'll find something about d day on it so what am i so so what are we remembering and celebrating today well we 're remembering and honoring d day of course why because it 's what people are telling us about how are we going to grow in our joyful celebration of the cross and the resurrection hopefully you know the answer gather with other believers and hear jesus speak directly to us by the power of the holy spirit through the preached word why to remind us what he did for us This is not the main point of this passage, but it is a principle that we can extract from it because we see the rhythm over and over again. What do followers of Jesus need? They need to gather together around Jesus and to listen to him. Listen to him, tell them what he is going to do for them. Now that's what we're here for tonight. He promised us in Matthew 18 that where two or more are gathered in his name, there he is with them. He is here. He promised in Matthew 28 that he is with us even to the end of the age. That means he is here. He promised in Revelation 2 that he walks amongst the churches. That Jesus is mystically present with us by the Spirit tonight, pulling us aside from the crowds, pulling us aside to himself to remind us How he demonstrated God's love for us by dying for us while we were still stuck in our sin. According to Jesus in the book of John, when by the Spirit we hear what the Son did for us, it shows us the Father. And when we behold the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we grow in our discipleship. That's what Jesus wanted for his disciples and that's what he wants for us tonight. So let's look at our passage And then let's celebrate. Let's remember as we come to this feast later tonight. Let's come with our chest out, thinking so exuberantly about the fact that he died sacrificially for our sins, just as he called his disciples to remind them that they might celebrate that fact someday. Let's hear this word and let's celebrate the fact that Jesus died for our sins. Our passage has a simple structure. 17 through 19, Jesus predicts his sacrificial death. And then 20 through 27, Jesus explains his sacrificial death. Jesus predicts, and then he explains. It's focused on his death and resurrection. And as I was studying this passage this week, I kept thinking, wow, that's an, an extremely important thing about the cross. But that's another extremely important thing. And I just kept listing out all the things these 12 verses tell us about the cross and the resurrection, I came up with a list of 10. I probably could have done more, but 10 sounded memorable. So there are 10 things that you're going to hear me say about the cross and resurrection in these 12 verses. Yes, the structure is the prediction and the explanation, but there's a list of 10 things that if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to meditate on, because these are perhaps the 10 most important things in the history of the world. These truths. So let's look at these verses, 17 to 19, to get us started and see how Jesus predicts his sacrificial death. The first thing Jesus tells us about the gospel, that is, his sacrificial death, is that it was intentional. It was intentional. Jesus says in 17 that he was going up to Jerusalem, he was not chained and dragged or or put on a cart. Or put on a horse in some way and dragged from Galilee, where he had been doing his ministry, to the authorities in Jerusalem. No. He walked there. Of his own will, he intentionally went to Jerusalem. The reason he intentionally went to Jerusalem is because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreed. And eternity passed. If you can get your mind around it. Which you can't. Neither can I. They agreed in eternity past to save sinners. It was the Father's will to save sinners. It was the Son's will to save sinners. It was the Spirit's will to save sinners. And that's why the Son goes of his own accord intentionally to Jerusalem. It's why he says at the end of Matthew, when he's explaining to his followers, these 12, the Lord's Supper, he says, my blood of the covenant is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins it's why the angel of the lord came from the father to tell joseph to name him jesus why because he would save his people from their sins jesus of his own intentional will goes to the cross and the resurrection he wanted to in a certain sense He wanted to save sinners. And that's why he was intentionally going to the cross. Second, we see that this gospel is is royal. It's royal. In verse 18, Jesus is the son of man, he says. The son of man is a a phrase from Daniel 7. Daniel 7 teaches us about the eternal kingdom. Daniel has a vision and he He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is to the son of man, was given glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So amongst many other things that this prophecy in Daniel 7 is about, it is about how the Son of God received an eternal kingdom that shall not be destroyed and he received it from God the Father. That is the Ancient of Days. So Jesus' death and resurrection is royal. In nature, He is the son of man on his way to die. He is the king of kings who takes his throne by dying for the sins of his people. That's why his gospel is royal in nature. He's the son of man who receives a kingdom. How does he receive that kingdom? By taking a crown of thorns and then being coronated as the king of kings by being lifted up on a cross. He is the son of man who receives his kingdom by dying. Well, third, we see that his death and resurrection are very Jewish. If you look at the second half of 17, it says the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Now, these were the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And one manifestation of the sin for which Jesus dies is the rejection of his own fellow Jews. See, the leaders of as we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, are threatened by his power. They're threatened by his love. And they're threatened by his wisdom. They can't confound him. They ask him every question imaginable. And eventually they just stop. Instead, what do they do? They murder him. His death is very Jewish. Why? Because they, they murder him as a sinner just like you or I would do in their place. So it's a Jewish death. Fourth, we see that his death is judicial or legal in a sense, you might say. He is condemned to death, the passage tells us. Jesus intentionally walks into a trial. This is a prediction, remember. He is saying what's going to happen. He intentionally walks into a trial that is completely fabricated And illegitimate, but he knows that. (laughs) He knows that, and he walks like a silent lamb to the slaughter so that he can stand as a worthy sacrifice for sin. See, the fact that he receives condemnation in a Jewish judicial hearing symbolizes the fact that all who are in Christ, that is, the Jewish Messiah, all who are in Christ will not stand trial at the judgment seat of God. If you wonder why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it is because Christ Jesus took the condemnation that you deserve. This condemnation was so unjust that even Pilate's rotten Pilate, knew he was innocent. That's how unjust this was. Well, then why was he condemned, you might say? Why, why did they condemn him to death? For your sin. For my sin? He was condemned so that all who put faith in Christ receive the verdict of not guilty at the judgment seat of God. Both now and for eternity. That's why he was condemned. He intentionally went to an illegitimate trial so that he could receive the verdict of condemned for you, for me. Jesus stood in our place and he received A religious condemnation. They judged him a sinner. Fifth, his death, in addition to being Jewish, is very Roman, very secular, you might say. Look at verse 19. The Jews gave him to the Gentiles. See, the Jews were not allowed to execute a criminal. They weren't weren't legally able to, according to the nature of their relationship with Rome at the time. But the Romans... They had secular authority to to do whatever they wanted. It's why they free one man who's a criminal. They can do whatever they want. So they brutally murder Jesus Christ on your behalf and mine. And they commit the greatest act of sin the world would ever know by killing him. The passage tells us that he is mocked. Jesus knew. That he would go to be mocked. He's predicting that he's going to be mocked in verse 19. It shows the emotional degradation that he's going to suffer. He's going to be insulted over and over again. We don't stop and think about this very often. But I hate being insulted. I can't stand it. It makes me so angry. I want to defend myself. I want to tell people they're wrong. He intentionally went to be mocked to be insulted. And then he's flogged. That is, he's beaten and whipped. He predicted that he would be beaten and whipped. He knew it. He knew what was coming, and he intentionally went to it. And then, of course, finally, he predicts that he is going to be crucified. Now, this is a Roman way of killing a criminal, a death death. On a cross, crucified, he suffocated to death at the hands of the Gentiles, the hands of the Romans. So you can see his death is secular in a certain sense. The fact that it's Jewish and the fact that it's Roman shows us that he is dying for Jews and Gentiles. It symbolically represents his atonement is not just for one people, but rather for people from every tribe, tongue, and language and nation. So his death was Jewish and his death was secular. And then six, we see that his death and resurrection are, in a certain sense, Trinitarian. You might think, I don't see that in the passage. If you look at the end of verse 19, it says, He will be raised. It's a passive. He will be raised. Now John 10 stresses that Jesus lays down his life and takes it up again on his own. But here, Jesus stresses the passive, that he is raised. And the rest of Scripture tells us how. Galatians 1.1 1, 1 says that Paul is an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He was raised by the will of the Father. And then 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. When he says that he will be raised, he's pointing forward to the fact that his death and resurrection are Trinitarian because they reveal the plan of God from eternity past to save sinners. This was the will of God for the Son to be sent into the world to die for the sins of those who would ultimately reject him. His death and resurrection are Trinitarian. Well, these seven truths from these first three verses show us that Jesus is consciously aware and committed to his mission. He knows what he's doing. Nothing catches him off guard in Jerusalem. He's not there yet, but he knows exactly what is going to happen. He is predicting nearly every facet of his sacrificial death. You would have thought that I was preaching on the end of Matthew just now. It feels like I am. It feels like I'm preaching on the cross and the resurrection. I am preaching on a prediction about the cross and the resurrection. Jesus knew what he was doing. He predicted his sacrificial death. Intentionally went there for you, for me, for all who repent. He went to the cross for them. Well then he applies and explains his sacrificial death in 20 through 27. So let's let's turn there now, 20 through 27, as the, the narrative picks up. The mother of James and John comes to Jesus and kneels in order to make a request. And Jesus asks her what she wants. And in response, the mom says, "You know, the, the mother of, of James and John says she wants her boys to sit in the seats of honor in Jesus' kingdom. And you can see his closest followers think they are on the way to Jerusalem for him to become a king the way a military leader rides into town and takes over a city. They're thinking they're walking to Jerusalem for the the coronation of Jesus as the Messiah they've been waiting for who will overthrow Rome. They're thinking, oh, and I want to make sure that one of my sons uh, or both of my sons has has a good seat in the kingdom. Jesus responds in a very gracious fashion to their instinct, which is to celebrate triumph over war. Just the way ours is. Jesus responds graciously And he directs a question at James and John. If you see in verse 22, he says to the mom, you don't know what you are asking. But then he he says to the boys, to the sons, they're men, but he says to them, are you able to drink the cup? And by this, we know he means the cup of suffering. We know this because just a few chapters later, he says to his father before he dies, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. The cup represents the cup of suffering, the cup of death. The sons say they are able to drink the cup of suffering. But well, he promises them that they will actually take that cup. He promises them that that is coming, but he still deflects the question about honor, saying it's reserved for the Father to assign seats in the kingdom. Now, What Jesus means by this is that in his incarnate state, as a as a man, in his human nature, where he's submitting to the will of the Father, it is the Father's call on where everyone sits in the kingdom. Well, as this little vignette wraps up, the other 10 disciples, if I've already mentioned, are, are angry. They wish they had thought of this. It's like they're brothers who are fighting over who's going to get the front seat on the way home. They Oh, I should have called it first. That's what they're thinking. I I should have been the one to say, I want the best seat in Jesus' kingdom. Ah, the passage doesn't tell us that. And and there's a chance they're indignant. Oh, you you guys are being so self-righteous. But it's not likely that they're upset over their their behavior. Instead, they're upset they didn't think of themselves. Jesus, of course, is not worried about who will sit where. He wants them to understand the gospel. He wants them to understand his death and his resurrection because that impacts how they think about honor and power and glory and the reality of the kingdom. If you look at verse 25, Jesus explains that the the, the secular world, he says, operates with a a top-down structure of authority. It's not likely that he's speaking real pejoratively here. He's just describing the facts. The world operates with a top-down structure of authority. The person at the top is in charge, Jesus is saying. But he says, in the kingdom, you remember this is in response to the people who are are trying to get the best seat at the table. In response, he says, in the kingdom, it will be different. It shall not be so among you, he tells his disciples. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, verse 26. He's inverting the nature of his kingdom. And whoever would be first among you, he says, must be your slave. Now, this is the same thing Jesus has been saying Throughout his entire book. You must repent to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be like a little child. If you're going to be one who receives the kingdom of heaven. Or the first will be last. He said most recently. He is is stressing from various angles. The reality that those who are humble and repentant enter the kingdom. Those who are like a slave. Those who serve others are the ones who will be the greatest in that kingdom. And to make sure they understand, he communicates that this ethic is directly derived from his death and resurrection. This ethic comes explicitly from his work on the cross. Why should they be willing to serve in this way? Why should they be willing to act like slaves for others? Look at verse 28. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that means that the king, that is the son of man, the king, remember, we already stressed this from Daniel 7, God, who has existed forever, who created the world, came to serve, came to give his life as a ransom. And this tells us our seventh truth about the gospel. It's substitutionary. Jesus gives his life in the place of others he gives us life to ransom others and and that explains our, our eighth point that that his life liberates us it buys us out of slavery it buys us out of our slavery to sin and death and that's why that, that motivation is meant to teach the disciples that if they desire to be great in his kingdom as his followers, if we desire to be great, in his kingdom, as followers of King Jesus, then we must be willing to serve. The first will be last, he says. We must be like a little child. It's the same motif coming at it from different angles. His point is to emphasize that everything you think about this world and the way that it works, the kingdom of heaven is inverted in that regard. He gains power by dying for us. It's the nature of his kingdom. It's the nature of his coronation. And in that regard, our ninth point is that it's exemplary. It's an example. Jesus's death is an example for us. It is substitutionary, yes. It was on our behalf. He gave his life. It is liberating, yes. He ransoms us from sin and death, yes. But it's also an example for us. We're meant to follow The path that he walks, which is why he tells us, his disciples, over and over again if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross. Well, the tenth point, the final point, a point that I hope you're convinced of, is that this is astonishing. This is shocking news. Jesus knew exactly what he came to accomplish. Now this is Matthew 20. He is predicting and explaining what he 's going to do before he even gets to Jerusalem. Nearly every facet of the gospel is here in these twelve verses. Yes, Paul goes on to, to Explain further, but really, he's just putting meat on the bone of what Jesus explains in these 12 verses. He's making it explicitly clear that Jesus' death was substitutionary, that Jesus' death ransomed us from sin. Yes, the rest of the Bible makes it explicitly clear what the gospel is about, but Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he came to the world. He knew what he was up to. He knew why he was there. He knew why his name was Jesus. It was to save his people from their sins. He knew why his blood would be shed. It was for the forgiveness of sins. He knew. That's why he was able to predict it. In Matthew 20, Jesus intentionally, intentionally went to the cross to save and forgive sinners like you and me. And so while, yes, we can celebrate things like D-Day and it's our natural instinct to affirm the valor and the courage and the honor represented there, well, we must not let that ethic carry us so far that when we see the cross, we're repulsed by it. Because the cross is where Jesus dies for sinners in order to achieve his kingdom, in order to inaugurate his kingdom. And so any who are going to enter that kingdom, who are going to submit to that type of king, must be the ones who repent. Because the first will be last. Or we must be like little children. Or we must be like servants of others if we're going to actually be great in the kingdom of heaven. So as we hear this news of intentional sacrifice, intentional sacrifice, the story of the cross that Jesus knew he came to accomplish, as we hear this news, let us celebrate and remember the greatest acts. Of sacrifice that the world will ever know. And as we look to this table, as you take the cup today, and as you take the bread, think Jesus intentionally died for me because he wanted me to be with him forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you gathered us tonight around Jesus so that he could speak to us. Tell us what he did for us. I pray, Father, that you would send your spirit as we now go to your table, that we would exercise faith as we feast on Christ, our Savior and King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.